Welcome to the weekly podcast of Bright Star Bible Church. Thank you for joining us. As you listen to the proclamation of God's Word, our prayer for you is the same prayer Jesus prayed for His church in John 17, 17. Lord, sanctify them in truth. Your Word is truth. I know that for many of you that this is just the beginning of the day and you've got things planned throughout the day to be with family and that sort of thing. And so with that in mind, uh, we're going to dive right into God's word this morning. Okay, so if you would, if you're able, please stand to your feet. We're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 20. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 20. This is the word of God. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed as good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the words which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. And for that he was buried, and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that he appeared to more than five hundred brothers at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. After that he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also." For I am the least of the apostles, and not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they. So we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised." For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. This is the word of God. Would you bow with me? Lord, we are so grateful for your word, and we ask that today as we we look to the truth of your word, we, we recognize that these words are spirit and they are life, Lord, and we ask that you would give us the courage, each of us, to submit fully to what your word says, Lord God, and that we would live our lives in submission to you. We would live our lives accordingly. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In all of human history, the Bible records only 10 occasions on which someone who has died was raised from the dead. And you might think that it would be more than that with 
uh, you know, some of the folks out there pushing certain things and their theology, but in fact, we find it to be a rare thing and for a specific purpose of validating God's man and validating God's message. The first account we find in the Old Testament in 1 Kings, and it's in chapter 17, verses 17 through 24. You don't have to turn there. I'm going to give you a synopsis here. But the prophet Elijah raised the son of the widow Zarephath, and her response uh, exposes God's standard for the purpose of miracles. Uh, here's what she says. Now I know this, that you are a man of God and that the word of Yahweh in your mouth is truth. So the purpose was, again, to validate God's man and to validate God's message. The second is in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 18 through 27. And following in the footsteps of his predecessor, the prophet Elisha raised uh, the Shunammite woman's son. And of course, we know that Elisha prayed and asked for a double portion of, uh, of miracles that God had displayed through his predecessor, Elijah. And we find that the third raising of the dead is found in 2 Kings chapter 13, verses 20 through 21. And this was an additional miracle of Elisha after he had died. And you've likely heard this account uh, again sometime after Elisha had died. And we know this because there were only bones left, okay? He was uh, placed in a tomb. And we read of these men who were tasked to find a burial place for another man who had died. And in the process, they were frightened by a band of Moabites. And in, rather than have a skirmish with those Moabites, they made a quick decision and they tossed the corpse of this young man in the tomb of Elisha. And as soon as the corpse touched Elisha's bones, that man sprung back to life. And there are only three examples of raising the dead in the Old Testament. And in each of these cases, a genuine prophet of God was involved. And as far as the New Testament accounts uh, are concerned, the first account of a collision of life and death, we, we find in the book of Luke chapter 7, verses 11 through 17. This was literally a collision of life and death while on the road to a city called Nain and a large crowd following Jesus Jesus intercepted a funeral procession of the son of a widow from that nearby city. And I find it very interesting that the prophet Elijah raised the son of a widow when he raised someone from the dead. Elisha raised a woman's son. And here we see the very first time Jesus raising someone from the dead. It is the son of a widow. And again, this was God's method of validating his man and his message. And Jesus said to this young man, placing his hand on the coffin, he says, young man, I say to you, arise. And of course, the young man came to life. And the Bible says that they, they, they all stood in awe, that it gripped them all. They glorified God, recognizing Jesus as a great prophet because it connected this miracle to both Elijah and Elisha, those Old Testament prophets, but they also recognized him as God. And it says this news spread all over Judea and in the surrounding district. So the, the truth was out. In Luke 8, 
40 through 56, we have the account of Jairus's daughter. You've all read this account. Jesus went to the home of Jairus and found this young lady with mourners surrounding her. And he took her by the hand and he said, my child, get up. And her spirit returned and at once she stood up. And again, everyone was rightly astonished seeing someone who was just, just before had, was dead and had been brought back to life. And in John 11, we have the account of the third person that Jesus raised from the dead, and it was, of course, his friend Lazarus. And Jesus stood at the tomb and he prayed, and here's his prayer, and I want you to pay close attention here as well, again, that, uh, about the validation of God's man and God's message. Jesus says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me, and I knew that you always hear me, but, be but because of the crowd standing around, I said this, so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And of course, we know that Lazarus rose from the dead. Now, one of the more interesting accounts is an exclamation point, if you will, on the validation of uh, the words and the redemptive work of Jesus. We find this account in Matthew 27. The Bible says, that there were many people raised at uh, the time of the death and resurrection of Christ, raised up from the, the tombs. It says that the earth shook, the rocks split, and the tombs broke open. And these open tombs, I believe from Scripture that it seems that they remained open until the third day. And at that time, Scripture says, the bodies of many holy people were raised to life. They came up out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection and they went into the city and appeared to many people. Imagine that. On the very day that Jesus was raised to life, these saints were also raised and became witnesses in Jerusalem of the life that only Jesus Christ can give. In Acts 9, of course, we have the raising of Tabitha by the Apostle Peter. And in Acts 20, we have the raising of Eutychus by the Apostle Paul. And once again validating these apostles to both Jews and Gentiles that these were God's chosen men with God's message at the founding of Christ's church. And they did this in the authority that Christ had given them, of course, and Jesus being the author of life had that authority to give them. Amen? Of all these incredible accounts, I do find one conversation between Jesus and Martha the brother of Lazarus, to be particularly important this morning. In John chapter 11, John chapter 11, verses 21 through 26, John 11, 21 through 26, here we see their conversation. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God... God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. So here, Martha's exposing that she knew her theology. She knew that there would be a resurrection one day. All right, but she wasn't talking about the future resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die, ever. And then he asks this question, 
Do you believe this? Do you believe this? If we are to live with Christ forever, we must believe this. We must believe it. Every one of us in this place, each and every soul in every church gathered across the country today, uh, we all have the same appointment, a collision of life and death in each of our lives. We all face that appointment one day. In Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, it states clearly and concisely, it is appointed for men to die once, and after this, the judgment. And there's no way around it. There's no way to avoid it. But for the believer, those in Christ, Paul uh, describes it as merely falling asleep. And the truth is that the years you've lived up until now, every single second that you have lived has been a gift to you by God. And not a one of us in the room knows how many seconds, hours, days, minutes we have. There are no guarantees on exactly how long we're going to be allowed to live. What we do know is that each of our years have been allotted to us by our sovereign God. The dash between the day you were born and the day that you die rests completely in his hands. In Job 14.1, Job 14.1, we find it says, Man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Like a flower he comes forth and withers. He also flees like a shadow and does not stand. And then in verse uh, 5, pay attention to this. Since his days are determined, the number of his months is with you, and his limits you have set so that he cannot pass. Very clearly stated in Scripture that our sovereign God gives us the days. In Psalm 139 and verse 16, Psalm 139 and verse 16, says, Your eyes have seen my unshaped substance, and in your book all of them were written, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was not one of them. So I think Scripture very clearly teaches that, uh, you know, God himself has determined the length of our life and how long we'll be on this earth. And for me, I don't know about you, but for me, it brings a great deal of peace and comfort uh, knowing that one too many cheeseburgers are not going to do me in or that extra piece of, of chocolate cake, but I'm here uh, to do the will of the Father, right? And that all of that stuff was determined before I ever even existed. And the deal is this, folks, make no mistake, for each of us, this life is the opening act of our eternity and where we will spend the rest of our existence. And in our heart of hearts, every human being knows that there is something more beyond this life. Every person who's ever drawn breath wonders what lies just beyond their final breath. Truly, there are no atheists in foxholes. When the bullets are flying overhead and the bombs are dropping nearby, they're all praying that they will live, that they'll survive. Every civilization in human history is pondered and prepared for their eventual end. And the idea that we live and someday just cease to exist as is becoming so popular amongst so many uh, atheists these days, that idea just doesn't sit right with us. And why would that be? 
It's because scripture tells us that Yahweh has placed eternity in our hearts. He's placed eternity in our hearts. At our very core, we know there's something more beyond this life, but we also know that this collision is inevitably coming. Jesus undoubtedly points to himself as the solution in this collision of death and life, this future demise that we face at the hands of our enemy death. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. So as we look at our main passage this morning in 1 Corinthians 15, we find that there had been confusion amongst the believers in this church at Corinth. Cultural beliefs had infiltrated this young church and it clouded their full scope of what they knew the gospel to be. And as a result, confusion ensued regarding the resurrection. And many of these Jewish rabbis in that time had been teaching that in whatever state your body died, that would be the state in which you would be raised. So if you can imagine that, if you're 93 years old, you would be raised again in your 93-year-old body in its frailty, in its uh, proneness to illness and disease and that sort of thing. And that's precisely the reason why the Greeks mocked the idea of a physical resurrection. They did not believe in the resurrection. The idea was, in fact, offensive to them. One historian named Celsus called it, quote, the hope of worms, the hope of worms. And to them, the body was a prison and death meant shedding the flesh, leaving it behind to move upward and onward to a higher form of existence. Likely, the Corinthians were exposed to those types of teachings. So you can see why they would take issue with the idea of the resurrection. And that attitude had taken hold on some of those believers there in that Corinthian church. So if we look now in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, if you would, chapter 15, verses 1 and 2. Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I proclaimed is good news to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast to the word which I proclaimed to you as good news, unless you believed for nothing. So Paul begins chapter 15 with his argument. Consider this. You've heard the good news. You've You've heard the gospel and you received it. You actually believed the gospel. And because of that, you stand and you have your salvation and you have courage uh, in your walk with the Lord. You have courage to face the enemy. You, you face the trials of life. You willingly face the threat of persecution. And then he adds, if you hold fast the word which I proclaim to you is good news, unless you believe for nothing. You must hold fast to the entire word of the true, genuine gospel of Jesus Christ. Cover to cover, the full counsel of God. This is not an intellectual faith. It's not a cultural faith. It's not a swept up in an emotional moment sort of faith. Holding fast to the word produces a regenerating, truly saving faith. And Paul is saying to these Corinthian believers, the fact that the gospel went out to the nations and you believed the fact that you stand here today in Corinth as a church. This is evidence of Christ's redemptive work, that his message was true, that it was powerful. And all of these things prove the validity and power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's look again at verse three as he continues his argument. 
For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And Paul's not saying here according to the scriptures as a reference to the New Testament, all right? Because at this time, the New Testament had not been fully given to the church. It had not been fully delivered. And Paul's talking about Old Testament prophecies that were alluding to the resurrection. I wonder if you recall the one Old Testament passage that Jesus himself quoted in Matthew 12, 39 through 40. Jesus says, An evil and adulterous generation eagerly seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the earth. So, to review his opening statement there in 1 Corinthians 15, number one, the fact that you even exist as a church proves the resurrection. Number two, the prophetic nature of the scriptures attest to the resurrection. And number three, moving on here, there were eyewitnesses, and there were a lot of eyewitnesses, which Paul goes on to point out starting in verse 5. He appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, and then he appeared to the 12. Verse 6, after that, he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Verse 7, after that, he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles. Verse 8, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also, for I am the least of the apostles and not worthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God with me, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believe. Consider that before the resurrection, some of these same men doubted. They were faithless. They refused to understand Christ's mission eternally, the grand scheme of things. They kept their eyes focused so often on the temporal. They could not even pray in the hour of his suffering in Gethsemane. They fell asleep. They abandoned him at his arrest, running for their lives. Paul even persecuting Christ's church in direct opposition of the gospel message, and even opposing Christ himself. But after the resurrection, these same men who witnessed the resurrected Christ were emboldened to follow and even die for the gospel. Paul and the other apostles, quote, held fast to the word and proclaimed it as good news. And the power of the gospel is preaching Christ crucified, Christ buried, and most certainly the truth of his resurrection. Paul says, whether then it was I or they, so we preach and you believed. So from verse 1 to 11, Paul has been building his case for proof of the resurrection of Jesus because he's about to make this monumental point. In verse 12, he's going to expose this error that the Corinthian believers have bought into, and he calls them out. In verse 12, he says, Now if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, given all this evidence, how could some of you among you say that there is no resurrection? Why is this something that's circulating in this church? 
So right there, that error is exposed, plain and simple. There are some among you who are saying that there is no resurrection of the dead. And we know this is error because of what we read earlier, what Jesus already stated in his conversation with Martha. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. And then asking that question, do you believe this? Well, apparently there were those at the church in Corinth that did not believe this. And Paul was asking them why. Why do you not believe in the resurrection of the dead? Well, Christ's resurrection is proof. So why are you saying this? Why are you calling into question the very eternal hope that he gives his church? In fact, if you think about it, he's calling into question the entire foundation that the church is built upon. We look at what he states in verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. You see, Paul's making a point that both the reality of Christ's resurrection and the reality of the eternal hope of the resurrection believer, these two are intertwined. And to call into question the validity of one automatically calls into question the validity of the other. And if the resurrection of the believer is a false hope, so is the resurrection of Jesus. That's what Paul is saying here. Paul then methodically marches through the dire consequences of such an assertion that if, that if one of these dominoes falls, then the rest will tumble around them. Verse 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith also is in vain. If Christ was not raised, if he's not the son of God, then all of this is foolishness. We've wasted our lives, and every preacher that you've ever sat through, you've ever heard utter a word or preach out of the Bible, every single one of them has wasted their time. Romans 1.4 says that Jesus was designated as the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness. Well, how was he designated? It says, by his resurrection from the dead. So if Christ was not resurrected, there was no power displayed. There was no uh, designation of his preeminence, no proof that he is in fact the son of God. Verse 15, moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we bore witness against God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. So Paul is arguing here that the apostles themselves are liars Remember that one of the requirements of even being an apostle, which, by the way, sets apart anybody who would claim to be an apostle today, uh, is that you were to have been a witness of the bodily resurrected Christ, okay? So if the founders of the church are liars, then the foundation of the church is faulty, and the church itself is the biggest scam in all of human history. Verse 16 for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. The hope of the resurrection of the believer, as I said, is intertwined with the validity of Christ's resurrection. And without that hope, 
everything falls apart. If the resurrection is not possible, then brothers and sisters, when you heard the good news, you were moved by that message emotionally, but it meant nothing. Nothing changed. It was all a fabrication in your mind, just a worthless emotional experience. It was all meaningless, as the teacher in Ecclesiastes says. There is no good news. There is no hope. Everything will remain lost. If the resurrection of Jesus Christ failed, then our redemption is impossible. In Acts 4, verse 12, it says, There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven that's been given among men by which we must be saved. No other name. So if Jesus Christ is not the one, there is no other one. And you and I, of course, would remain in our sins, in our fallenness. We would remain under condemnation and the judgment of God. Do you understand the importance of, of this truth here? Not only that, but all of the loved ones who died before us, they are lost as well. You see, we believe that all those that we held so dearly in this life and loved, our family members, our friends who have gone on before us, we believe that they're with Jesus if they knew him. And this is what gives us comfort, that we'll see them again one day, that there'll be a great celebration, a rejoicing. And here, Paul tells them that denying the resurrection brings with it a devastating reality, a crushing blow that those folks that we love, that we held so dearly, that they are gone forever. They're lost and we'll never see them again. If Christ is not risen, proclaiming the gospel is pointless. Your faith is a farce. The apostles are all liars. The church is a hoax and sin is unforgivable. And the believers who looked ahead and hope died, and their hope was all in vain, as ours would be as well. Paul says, if this is the case, we are all doomed. We are all hopeless. And when considering this powerful point that Paul is making, as we contemplate the ramifications, the final blow of his argument makes perfect sense. Verse 19, if we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. We out of all of humanity are most to be pitied because, folks, there is a cost to be, being a follower of Christ. And at times the cost is very real. It's difficult. At times the cost hurts us deeply. The world tells us to embrace everything, to love everyone according to their definition of love, to live it up, to collect all the toys, to chase the money, experience everything that, that the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the boastful pride of life has to offer. And we reject that with all that we are because we believe God's word to be true. We believe Jesus and what he said, and his son was sent here to reconcile us to the Father, amen? And we hold to the belief that our eyes have been opened to the only way, the only truth, the only life, and we trust in that truth with all that we are. We've put all of our eggs in one basket. We've turned away from the world and all of its ways, 
So if Jesus has not risen, folks, we have lost everything. It's a monumental waste of time and all is lost. All that we hold dear, our very comfort in this life and our comfort in death is vanished. We've wasted our life on a lie. And so we would truly be pitied above all men. We would be the most tragic, pitiful, foolish people on the face of the planet. And Paul just lays them bare with this argument. Even now, as you sit here, as I prepared, you ponder these ramifications and it, and it tears at your heart. Considering the implications, it's just, it's a crushing thing to even consider. And I believe that God's word here should compel all believers to feel this eternal weight, the loss, the hopelessness, if Christ has not been raised. But the Holy Spirit is not finished with the church in Corinth, and the Holy Spirit is not finished with us. As Paul continues, these Spirit-inspired written words, there is eternal hope, verse 20, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Christ has been raised from the dead. So that despair that you felt just a moment ago, it's, it's all been turned on its head because Christ has been raised. It's all true. Every bit of it. The apostles spoke the truth and they believed it to such a degree that they even died. They gave their very lives for what they believed. Rejoice if you were in Christ. Your sins are truly forgiven this morning. And as the countless believers who have put their hope in the risen Christ Jesus, we all have that eternal hope. And, and those who have died before us, those who stepped from this life into the next life, into death, instantaneously, they stepped into the presence of their almighty creator, Jesus. Amen? We know this to be true. And Paul writes that Jesus was the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. He was the first harvest guaranteeing that there is a final harvest yet to come, a resurrection yet to come. And every believer who's gone on to glory, who left their body behind on this earth to decay and turn back into dust and ash, they will be resurrected as will you and I. Christ has risen and he has indeed risen victorious over all. Amen? Amen. Your faith is not in vain. And listen to me. Proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is your highest priority and your greatest mission in this life. The last collision of death and life is yet to come. For those who do not have Christ, the outcome is devastating. But for those who have repented and believed on the finished work of Jesus Christ, the outcome will be glorious. In 1 Corinthians 15, just a bit further down there in verse 54, I, I love this, this picture. Death is swallowed up in victory. I can't think of, of a more final picture of being swallowed up. Death is swallowed up, consumed by victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Christ is resurrected and we too will be resurrected and we hold fast to this future promise, the redemption of our very bodies. 
that we will be changed. In closing, we find that in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul echoes this fact. And he says in verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 5, he says, Indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened. How many of you in your lives, in the trials that you walk through and the challenges that you walk through, and you don't even have to be walking through a challenge. You just watch the news. You just look around us in this world. You just consider where we've gone in the last 15 to 20 years in this country. You just consider those things and you groan, you're burdened. He says, because we do not want to be unclothed, but to be clothed so that what is mortal will be swallowed up. There it is again, swallowed up by life. This mortality will put on the immortal and it will be swallowed up by life. This is what we celebrate today. Christ has been raised and because of that fact, just a little while longer, folks, just a little while longer, we too will be raised to live in the presence of Christ and the Father in communion with the Spirit, our triune God, eternally. Amen? Just a little while longer, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even if he dies, and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die ever. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Perhaps today, you're in this room today and you contemplate these eternal truths and you find that you are uncertain about where you stand with Almighty God. Scripture makes it crystal clear that you must recognize your fallen spiritual state and that by God's own standard of righteousness, you are hopeless. You have no hope in your own power to fix the situation. You must repent of your sin, put your faith completely in the person and work of Jesus Christ. His righteousness must be imputed to you. And, and if you repent and believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Spirit of God will transform you. You will be changed. I pray that this morning that as you have heard the truth, as we leave this place and you think through these truths over the next week, that you would pray that the Lord would open your eyes to this truth. And I encourage you throughout the week, if this is something that you're struggling with and you want to know where you stand with God, pray that he will open your eyes and then have the courage to go to someone that you know and love and trust and that you know loves you, who knows Christ, and ask them to walk you through scripture and show you what it means to be a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Christ is risen. Amen? Let's bow. Thanks again for joining us. If you'd like to visit us in person, we meet at 1015 every Sunday morning at the Glenpool Conference Center. You are always welcome.